Uh, welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Pacific Century, the Hoover Institution's podcast on the Pacific, Indo-Pacific, United States, China, and the future. I'm joined here by my co-host, Hoover fellow, Misha Oslin. Say hi to everybody, Misha. Hi, everybody, Misha. <laughs> uh, the most intelligent thing he said on in a long time on this show. <laughs> That's because we haven't been on for a few weeks. <laughs> That's true. It only goes and, down from here, John. <laughs> and Misha's uh, uh, going to introduce our very special guest for today. We're going to talk about China and economics and finance. We're really looking forward to today's episode. We should take it away. Well, that's right, John. Uh, in fact, if it were just the two of us, it'd be only downhill, but it's not going to be because we have a fantastic guest who's actually known to probably so many of you who uh, work on China and work on Asia issues, and that is Dan Rosen. Uh, Dan, uh, again, as many of you know, is the founding partner of Rhodium Group uh, and leads the firm's work on China, India, and broader Asia. Dan has nearly 30 years of professional experience, which means he's about as old as we are, John. But 30 years of professional experience analyzing China's economy, commercial sector, and its external interactions. Uh, he's involved with a number of think tanks focused on international economics and is an adjunct associate professor at King's College. Oh, I'm sorry, Columbia College in New York. I, I said King's because I'm writing about 18th century America when it was King's College. Um, Dan served in government. He was a senior advisor for international economic policy at the uh, National Economic Council and also the National Security Council. And he's a member of a bevy of international and uh, domestic organizations related to economics and foreign policy. Uh, most importantly, Dan and I uh, both graduated from Georgetown. Though Dan got his master's there and I got my BA. So, Dan, it's a uh, pleasure to welcome you to the Pacific Century. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to be with you guys. Great. Like, Dan, let me uh, start out by uh, asking you how did you get interested in China? Where, tell us, like, where did you grow up? Did you have an early youthful experience with China in some way that uh, plunged you into this lifelong career of working on China, China and economics? I remember. We were all the same age, roughly. And I remember in high school, my high school sent people, you know, sent a small student group to China and it was probably one of the first group of Westerners to go over. And I think everyone who went on that trip now works or is involved with China. They were so uh, taken by the experience. Do you have a similar story in your past? That You know, um, n not that I knew of when I was making the choice to, um, uh, to start studying China. I, um, I got to undergrad... Uh, Texas at Austin, and although I'm a native uh, Manhattanite from from New York City, and um, just thought a, a tough foreign language would be a, a good um, a good thing to have under my belt. Thought about um, Hindi, which my mother spoke after a tour of duty in the Peace Corps and the Punjab in the '60s. Uh, Russian, Arabic, Japanese, and Mandarin, and uh, a little bit of family encouragement to think about Mandarin from from a, a father who thought it was a good commercial choice, business choice. Um, we'd had some very close family friends um, who had were out of Asia, um, uh, uh, Taiwanese uh, uh, folks who had come out of the mainland originally. And so I had a familiarity a little bit with what was going on there in the late 80s, and it seemed exciting. I gave it a try, and, and it stuck. Um, it wasn't until I was about 20 years, 15, 20 years into that decision that I realized that my great, great aunt Alzada Gunn from Savannah had been a missionary in Guangzhou in, wow. uh, 
in Canton in 1899. So I, wow. I wasn't the pioneer in my family. I thought I was. Well, I thought maybe uh, being a good son, you just wanted to uh, be contrary to your mother. So you could, uh, you know, reenact border disputes with her and, and yell at each other in different language, you know, opposing languages there. <laughs> I did an undergraduate thesis on Sino-Indian uh, border conflicts. Over <laughs> there you Mata, go. <laughs> former Indian foreign secretary who was teaching at Texas at the time. Um, but no, it was my mother's, um, uh, my mother's uh, 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 um, appetite for the exotic that had planted the seed of confidence in me that it was possible uh, for somebody who um, uh, was not... Uh, really familiar in any kind of native way with uh, with Asian things to when, to open it up and see what they could do. When with did it. you first go to China? What was it like then? I think 1994, um, first time that I got on a plane and went over. Um, and you know, it, what I think is important now, looking back at that, it was just under two years after Deng's Southern tour and uh, this sort of seminal moment at which he. Um, provided clarity about where China needed to go next after the uh, brief hesitance that resulted from the Tiananmen Square debacle. Uh, and so I picked it up, you know, at that um, right as that next wave of um, really profound structural adjustment was happening. Um, in those years, um, it was um, simply in incontrovertible truth that China was um, undertaking a really first order, um, bold, uh, dangerous um, efforts to adjust its system in a direction that was um, very concordant, really, with what we would uh, consider to have been the American interest, really, and the broader Western interest at the time. Um, And that was no, no smoke and mirrors. It was quite real. Um, and, um, I sort of picked it up at, at the early stage of that wave, um, and have ridden that, uh, forward since. Well, Dan, that, that, Dan, that's actually a great, um, segue into a question. You, you, you teed it up perfectly, which is to say that, you know, you've seen this longitudinal, uh, development of the relationship over, uh, 30 plus years at this or 30 years at this point, obviously that paradigm stretches back a little bit farther about 40 years. And, and you said it, it was real and it was congruent. Um, is that where we are today? So last week, uh, actually at a Stanford uh, event, Kurt Campbell, who, uh, you know, and, and everyone knows is the, uh, the, the coordinator, I guess is the title now, the coordinator for Indo-Pacific Affairs uh, on the National Security Council, um, stated that the era of engagement is over uh, and that uh, the dominant paradigm, this is his his words, the dominant paradigm is going to be competition. Um, so first of all, do you agree with that, that the era of engagement yep. is over, that we're in a competition? If so, what does it mean? And what what do you think the U.S. is... What do you think the U.S. got wrong and what do you think the U.S. needs to do? Well, let me be provocative, starting with the end there, and then I'll go backwards. I don't think the U.S. really got anything wrong. Um, and we'll talk about that for a minute. But what Kurt was stating was essentially what the December 14th, if I remember correctly, 2017 National Security Strategy said, um, which was that the um, uh, engagement as a grand strategic framework um, was no longer um, in the interest of the United States, and we would be doing something different. Um, I think that we haven't figured out what that replacement strategy is yet, um, but I do accept that um, that's the, the you know best um, point on any calendar to point to uh, for when there was a, a clear break 
um, with what had been an extremely successful engagement strategy for many years. The, the nature of engagement uh, is best understood through the lens of policy convergence, starting with the question, was the predominant paradigm of what it meant to have a productive, sustainable, um, uh, effective economy um, built on the chassis of liberal Western neoclassical economic ideas. And it was never really compulsion from Washington or anybody else that um, uh, impelled China to change the way that its economic system worked. It was just the sheer demonstration of its more productive um, uh, capability as a model. And so from actually well earlier than 1978, from, uh, from Deng Xiaoping's return to power in 2000, uh, excuse me, 1971, 72, 73, he starts to come back from exile. And his main point is that technologically China is falling behind. Even the transistor salesmen in Japan um, were kicking their butt. Uh, and China was going to have to change how it thought about its economic system and the role of the state and the, the private sector, et cetera, if it had any hope of, uh, of closing that gap. And so from that point forward, for the, the logic of just the productivity of liberal economic systems, um, China really moved in that direction, which, um, as I said, it was very much concordant with in our interest to see them moving in that direction by the power of the example and, and the promise of, of economic liberalism. And that worked very well up until the point that sort of two, we got, we, we sort of started to see two things happen. Number one, um, the, uh, the, the open market liberal model as we know it here, say in the G7 or the OECD community started to show some real flaws that needed um, serious repair with the global financial crisis. And at that, around that same time, China was getting to the middle income point beyond which what's required to keep on track with that kind of an economic system becomes much different than the changes needed at an early stage. 1978 to 2010, all Beijing really needs to do is get out of the way. And that's largely what they did. They turned a blind eye to labor abuses, to foreign telecommunications firms running untethered all around China, building China's telecom grid in ways that implanted all sorts of vulnerabilities for them. Uh, environmental degradation, just run amok. All these sorts of things were indicative of, of Beijing just sort of stepping out of the way and letting business people make a lot of money and in the process of doing so, make the place a lot richer and, and technologically more advanced. Beyond 2010 or so, that stuff is done and the next round of economic growth requires a very different kind of stance from a government, um, a, a more proactive, pro-competitive, being an honest broker, providing a sense of confidence in the marketplace. Those are the things China's been struggling to do over the past decade, has not figured out how to do, and is their principal challenge going forward. It also means that the evidence that China was continuing to converge with our way of thinking economically ceased to pile up. <laughs> and here we are. Um, uh, it's more notable how, um, how divergent uh, we are rather than how convergent we are any longer. So I don't think we did anything wrong. We, we played our cards very well up until the point where 
we needed to do things differently and they need to do things differently. And now I think both sides are trying to figure out the best way to play their cards going forward. So let me ask you then, you know, there's, there is a, a debate over the, the actual strength of the Chinese economy um, questions over the reliability of the, the, the numbers um, uh, you know, you've, you've been on the ground, you invest there, you know, there's a lot of people who think it's, it's more of a paper tiger. Uh, I mean, not a paper tiger is, is that's an overstatement, but that uh, the economy is really not uh, as, as developed as they say it is. The numbers aren't as strong. What, what's your response? Is this, is this really still the most powerful economic engine in the world or, or is it a much more, is it a more nuanced and complicated mm-hmm. picture? Well, you made it easy for me with that last clause you added. Is it more nuanced? The I'll, answer is always I'll, yes uh, to that. I'll retract that. When <laughs> talking about China, but is it the most powerful economy in the world? Is it going to take over the world? Well, uh, okay, so you're making it easier once again because it's it's not the most powerful economy in the world. I mean, the United States is still, I think, uh, clearly the most powerful economy in the world. Is it the most? Um, uh, is it delivering the most marginal growth? And development, yes, it is. Um, it has it has been, you know, about a quarter or more of global growth for some years. And of course, uh, uh, in the pandemic year, it was virtually 100 percent of marginal global growth. The only place on the planet that demonstrated an ability to report uh, any economic um, growth activity. Uh, last year, which is probably true. It's it's sufficient to say it's true. Um, I would say, but. <laughs> to leave the nuance aside and just be a little more black and white about things. Um, uh, on the one hand, the way we would count up uh, gross domestic product using um, <clears throat> a, uh, you know, a very um, a sort of accounting heavy national income system. Um, there are tremendous questions about the veracity of what China is reporting, how well growth is really going. Um, so there's all those kind of statistical debates. I prefer a different kind of um, debate over the quality of uh, what we think China's growth really is and, and economic activity. And that is that even if the GDP growth they report is correct, that too much of it is coming from eating the seed corn would be a good metaphor to use here. Um, that is to say debt-driven growth that is going into less and less productive activity. And so even if today's reported growth is true, and it's partly true and partly not true, let's say, but you know, enough of it is true for China to really be a very important uh, you know, uh, growth center on, in the world. Um, but um, that is coming at a severe long-term costs cost that leaves me with more questions than confidence um, in China's economic uh, outlook, I would say. Now, I, I just one more one more thought on that, John, which is to say that from the perspective of any given industry or niche or segment of the economy, it's incontrovertible that as wasteful as it is, China is um, achieving tremendous gains and um, accomplishments uh, on its uh, on its economic endeavors in in a number of areas, but not all. So suppose you were the economic czar in the Politburo, and you had the you know the ear of the chairman. What would you tell him? You just mentioned China and the United States are having trouble figuring out what to do in terms of economic policy for this new economy that's coming upon us, what would you tell them to do? You know, you've, I think you laid out a very compelling criticism of how their old model may not work anymore. 
So what would you tell them to do to, you know, ensure China continues to grow? Well, let's in the Xi era over the past nine years, uh, I would have been telling him to uh, clean up the interbank credit market to explain that for the, the uh, listeners who don't know what any of those words That's, mean except yeah, bank. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that John means me. Yeah. He means me. And my mom too, right? <laughs> um, so, um, you know, uh, among banks, between banks and insurance companies, between banks, insurance companies, and trust companies, investment companies, and even down to pawn shops, um, there are all sorts of veins and arteries and um, and different kinds of institutions and markets where capital needs to flow in a mature financial system. And China has all of those different kinds of entities in its financial system nowadays, but it doesn't have a fully mature regulatory system to oversee and manage risk and the way that credit and money flows through the system. So we have some institutions, banks that are pretty well regulated, heavily regulated, but there's loopholes and there's other institutions like Ant Financial that are not regulated <laughs> in the same way. And hence, there's a lot of funny business that goes on. So, um, so, so you know, um, I mean, with that sort of simple explanation of it, uh, if you allow your banking system and financial system to keep issuing more and more debt, um, getting around the restrictions and the rules all the time, more and more pawn shops, let, let's say, think of it that way, then you build up systemic risk over time and it becomes very dangerous. You have the, 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 uh, the risk of bankruptcies and defaults and, uh, and all sorts of things like that. So I would have been telling Xi Jinping he needed to clean up this financial system. He needed well, can to I pause and ask you open two up. More, uh, some questions about that first thing. So okay. um, one is you often hear in the West that uh, one of the problems with the financial system there is that it involves too much politics. Is that true that you have a lot of uh, what we would consider state and local governments who own banks or, or guiding the, or even the central government guiding loans and so on to favored uh, recipients? And that mm-hmm. int- is that part of the problem? And then the second thing you described, that sounds like our 2009, 2008 financial crash you just described there is something like that going to happen in the in china if this keeps going on without stronger uh, regulation i mean inevitably right if you allow liar loans to become the norm right uh then it's just a matter of time before there's a reckoning Mm -hmm. around that kind of activity make no mistake about it and um and the more that activity is politicized so it's not even you know, informed by commercial decision-making, but just for pure politics. Like I want to deliver a a high growth number and therefore we're going to keep building something, even though we don't need any more of it. Uh, It'll just make it much worse into the future. Right. So, I mean, and we need to talk about this some more because actually financial risk is probably the, the principal um, uh, 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 source of likelihood that there will be a severe economic crisis in China in the medium term, probably not even in the long term. Mm-hmm. Um, but in addition to uh, needing to clean up the financial system, there was also an urgency to uh, normalize the exchange rate system, especially if China wanted to 
open up the capital account so that people could take renminbi out of the country and get other countries to choose to hold the renminbi instead of dollars, which is a stated Chinese ambition if it wants to be a great power, right? Um, also, I would be telling the leadership that they needed to get Communist Party committees out of boardrooms and company leadership uh, in order for independent boards of directors to make the decisions about what companies should be doing. That would make them more productive, um, ultimately, right? Um, I would also um, uh, be trying to uh, liberalize foreign direct investment in and out of the country so that there was a much, much smaller list of sectors where I was expecting foreign firms to rely on things like joint ventures, especially at a time when Chinese companies wanted to go global. And you didn't want to wake up sleeping dogs in Washington and, and Brussels and Berlin and have them say, hey, this is not reciprocal. You know, you're going to have to open up more at home if you want to have unfettered access to our market. I could keep going with things I would yeah. advise Xi Jinping, but there's actually a cheeky reason why I'm doing this, John, which is that Lioha ap- actually and absolutely made all these recommendations over the past nine years. And in each and every one of these cases, China did start a program of major reform. They tried to clean up the shadow banking system. They tried to delever the banks. They tried to open up the capital account. They tried to internationalize the RMB. They tried to do all these things. And in each case, it precipitated a miniature crisis, which caused them to shrink back to doing things the old way um, because they realized they hadn't figured out how to do it the reform way yet. So the crisis caused, and this is my last question, is really interesting. So I, I was about to say, it sounds like the way you describe this is that uh, the Chinese le- economists are very aware of these problems. The Chinese leadership knows what it has to do. They haven't been able to do it. Was it because of um, political response, resistance from you know, regional governments, others in the national leadership, because it would cause a lot of dislocation? as any of these proposals would in the short term? Or was it because it caused uh, economic pain in the short term that they didn't want to take in order to get to a better longer term footing for the economy? So is it politics or economics that caused the government to halt its reform efforts? Well, I think it's probably both. I'm an economist, so the whole world looks like an economic nail to me, of course. Um, You guys might see it differently. Um, I've been convinced by my political science friends that Xi Jinping doesn't really, he's not really constrained by politics these days. It's not like there's an active enough counter, uh, you know, uh, uh, counter source of power operating in the Chinese system that if he thought something was the right way to go, he would need to fall back from it for political reasons. So I'm not exactly sure what you mean by the politics holding it back, but I'm sure that there's something to be said about the politics. However, in each of the cases I mentioned, there was some acute uh, economic pain and a mounting risk of additional economic problems that the government knew it did not have the ability to manage. For example, after liberalizing the, the financial account, remember that China has an open current account for, for renminbi exchange. If you want to buy and sell stuff, if you want to export you know, locomotives and China imports bauxite, it's no problem changing your renminbi into dollars, your Chinese currency into dollars for those transactions. But if you want to buy and sell stocks and bonds inside China or Chinese people going outside, 
the financial account is not open for that purpose. You're not allowed to do that. You're only allowed to use it to buy and sell stuff, right? So that has prevented China from maturing as a financial economy. If you consider what a global trade powerhouse they are, it's kind of a, it's kind of extraordinary what a um, what a mouse they are in terms of their footprint in global financial markets. They're not there yet, and it's because they have chosen to keep the financial door closed. They have aspired to open that financial door. But after they experimented with doing so, starting in 2014, they saw their foreign exchange reserves fall from over $4 trillion to under $3 trillion in a matter of less than two years. And that was, I think, very disconcerting to them because there was a lot more money that was lined up waiting to diversify abroad as well. Um, And so they realized in the middle of that experiment that they didn't really know exactly where this was taking them. And they lost their stomach to continue it and said, we're going to have to delay here and circle back to this at some point in the future. Dan, that's, let me, um, let me jump in there. And and actually then I think this is an interesting point at which to, to raise the political question again. And and the question that, that uh, not to put words in John's mouth, but, but what I, what I would have asked one of the arguments that you hear uh, precisely about that fall in, in the reserves was that people wanted to get their money out of China, uh, particularly the elite, uh, meaning they didn't trust the system. They didn't trust the long-term of the system. They were offshoring to buy apartments and, and do whatever else that they could. Um, and so that raises that that political question about the degree to which the constraints that you've identified, or, or even some of the hesitancies, come back to questions of political power, come back to questions yeah. of ideology, concerns on the part of the party about being able to control all this this process. Is that, is, hmm. is that a legitimate interpretation? Um, well, it's a good question, but the interpretation needs some modification, I think. And the starting reason is that you and John have a lot larger share of your savings offshore of the United States than the typical Chinese has outside of China. So the first and foremost motive for Chinese citizens to want to send some money abroad is that unlike anybody in a mature economy that we we call that non-home bias, which is to say that, you know, you don't want a hundred percent of your life savings in a single country. (laughs) You want to divert, you want, you know, 25% of your pension funds, let's say you've checked the box with Vanguard or whoever's managing your, your, your retirement funds, right. That says international portfolio or something like that. Well, the typical Chinese citizen has 99% or so of their life savings in a single emerging country called China. And within that, it's so heavily weighted to the property sector. As you guys know, that's like the biggest place where capital gets absorbed in China. So it's a very irrational portfolio that China has. And China has one of the largest savings pools on the planet. And so it'd be very natural and not necessarily a vote against China's future for people to want to put some part of their life savings, you know, call it just like five or 10 or 15% would start to be sort of OECD normal, if you will, outside of China. The problem is that that kind of savings, people deploy it overseas. In this case, we're talking about the Chinese perspective for the long term. 
Now, meanwhile, global investors also want to put money in China, as we all know, right? Um, Morgan Stanley, um, uh, er, you, you name it. Um, every global fiduciary is looking at China as a big place to put wealth um, for the years ahead. But for right now, all the money going into China is short-term money. People that are mostly making a bet that the renminbi is going to be strong for the moment against the U.S. dollar. And so they're trying to find those kinds of opportunities. Most investors are not yet going long on China. They're, they're sort of making shorter-term bets. And so what concerns Beijing, the serious economic regulators in Beijing, is not just that there's a few trillion dollars headed west, but that the money going abroad is going to stay there for decades, whereas all this foreign money coming in is kind of short-term in nature and could turn around and go back out tomorrow. So that's precisely the circumstances that precipitated the Asian financial crisis and wrecked the development process in a lot of other nations, and authorities are, are, are naturally quite concerned about it. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting. I want to actually want to ask another question, but I, there's an interesting point that you raised about you know us being more offshore. I, I don't know if you know I don't know all of the instruments the Chinese are using or were able to use before they clamped down to get that money out. But those of us who want to you know invest uh, in the in the developed West, those of us in the developed West who want to invest, um, don't want to get our money out of the country. We just want to get a better return somewhere. Whereas part of the argument is. The Chinese elites want to get their money out of the country. They want it to be safely away from the party and potential expropriation of the money. Uh, and certainly, I'm sure there are some savvy investors who say, yeah, I want, to, I want to be able to invest better abroad. But if you ask most Americans, they just think, well, yeah, just, I'm going to get more. But they, they want that money to come back to them. They want it to. So anyway, that's something we could we could get into. But I want to. But it raises a, another question. And you you started off by saying I'll be provocative. So I want to end my questioning with being provocative, which is to ask you. And, and you know, you've uh, obviously you're one of the most informed uh, observers of China and experienced, uh, obviously from the from the financial end. But you have great involvement in all of the different ways in which the United States engages with China. And I want to ask you a question about morals. And the question about whether morals enter into this at all. Everything that you've said today, we could cap the interview right here, and it would be a perfect discussion about economic efficiency and inefficiency and so on and rationality. But we're not just dealing with a country like the United States or or Japan or Europe or many of the countries that, that we invest with and trade with and, and partner with. Um, is there a moral component and a moral element should it enter into it? Does it matter that if we invest in China, we are supporting a, a system that is uh, clearly not democratic, is autocratic and increasingly so, that uh, oppresses the minorities? We could go through that, that has you know, destroyed freedom in Hong Kong. Should this enter into our equations at all? Or is it just, no, let's, let's just do business. And, and at the end of the day, that's all we're there for. Should, should, we, should we consider that from the perspective of, a, of an individual or from the perspective of a company or from the government of the United States? Well, I, I think it's it's all of them. Ultimately, in, individuals, you know, can can yeah. try to decide that I don't want my money invested in China. They can say I don't want to buy Chinese products, whether right. slave labor or otherwise. Certainly, companies we see, you know, we see the um, uh, American companies uh, debasing themselves, uh, and we see the United States government until, to your point, about 2017 or so, really 
not yeah. doing much to protect a lot of economic and intellectual interests and the like. So yeah, I think it's collective in some yeah. way, but individual. Okay. So, I mean, I think, I think on all three levels, it's, it's crucial that we have very serious and thoughtful conversations about these matters of ethics and morality. Um, I, um, though I'm an economist, um, I, I've spent a good deal of time looking at the contentions of realism in foreign policy and its admonition to avoid questions of, of morality because they're always slippery and impossible to tie down. And obviously, you know, post-war America um, is a story of, you know, ability and willingness and necessity to deal with um, non-democratic nations worldwide um, when it was in the interest and essential to the American interest to do so, right? And so I guess it's all circumstantial what the hard and fast necessity is for the United States government. And I don't presume to um, really know what the proper answer is going forward. I will say, though, that one of the most underestimated elements of American power um, has been our ideals, has been our attachment to a higher calling, a higher morality, really, and an appeal to ethics as an organizing principle in our uh, ideals and aspirations, even though we at times had to acknowledge that um, those were not the only factor um, that were that was um, at work in the choices, policy choices we had to make along the way, right? Um, always striving toward um, uh, a set of, um, of precepts and ideas um, because they're the right thing to do. And, you know, the luxury of working on economics from the 1980s through the 90s and until today has been that there was a profound agreement between liberalism as an idea in politics and in ethics as well, right? And free trade, mar- open market economics. They, they did seem to be mutually reinforcing in a really powerful way. And I still firmly believe in the material economic efficiency of a more ethical, more morally informed set of choices that people make. Um, it removes all sorts of reputational risks, especially nowadays um, when we're um, when we're open to and exploring the complexity of our own ethical history as a nation, um, the um, work we still have to do um, in terms of minority um, and uh, other communities that have been dis- discriminated against almost systematically in the United States. So um, the sort of liberal responsibility taking for ethical and moral behavior which something which realists, Mearsheimer type guys used to treat as like an expensive indulgence that a powerful country couldn't afford. Turns out, I think, in the 20th, 21st century to be a comparative advantage. It means that a nation that's comfortable with that sort of conversation, that sort of philosophical um, 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 uh, uh, commitment um, to how it, the choices it makes is going to be more globally interoperable, more globally at home abroad with other nations, other people that have other ways of thinking about things. Whereas China's present philosophy and national conversation is really quite, I think, nativistic and backward looking and closed in terms of what's acceptable and what's what's not. And so uh, it's kind of slightly convoluted, but I hope it's a little bit profound too, that to the, the extent I'm which, you know, to which I'm willing to 
um, stand up and advocate for morality in American foreign policy is because I think it is concordant with good economics. Yeah. I, 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 we're going to close now because I can't believe we've already run through our time and a little over, but I can't help. I got some questions for you at the close. Since you're from New York, I want to ask you some New York mayor questions. <laughs> for okay. example, you're in Washington right now. What's your favorite Chinese? No, I'm, I'm in sorry? New York, actually. Oh, okay. What's your favorite Chinese restaurant? And what's your favorite dish in New York? And the right answer is not Sabaro. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite Chinese restaurant in New York, that's really <laughs> tough because having spent like a quarter of my adult life in China um, doing field work and, and research, um, I've come to appreciate uh, just what, what a great difference there is yeah, between the, regions the, and the cuisines. Uh, and, but you got to pick one. You have to of, pick one. Yeah. So I, I, I used to be a tremendous fan of a Grand Sichuan International down in Chelsea because their Chongqing Ladziji was as close as any I could find in town to the kind of um, uh, really um, super mala um, cooking that I that appeals to me right. so much. Um, nowadays, yeah, there's not. I mean, we haven't been out to dinner the past year very much here in New York, of course. So it's pretty much my own. My own home kitchen is where is where most of my favorite my favorite Chinese stuff happens. So what was no, that was it. Uh, well, then the other one was going to be favorite subway stop in Beijing, and you're not supposed to say Times Square. Uh, <laughs> like, but I I, I I actually just want to know about I the think Chinese what candidate. Restaurant. What what candidate Yang taught us as good New Yorkers? Is there's no good. There's no right answer to a question like. <laughs> well, we know what the wrong answer I love was. Them all. <laughs> Yes. Well, Indeed. thank you so much, Daniel, for joining us. This has been a great uh, episode and really uh, enlightening and eye-opening. I, I hope you'll uh, join us again. Thank you so much for being with us this afternoon. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, John, that was great with uh, Dan Rosen, really, to, uh, again, talk from a, a real insider's perspective on the Chinese economy. But there is other China news. And man, what a difference a couple of weeks make. Uh, last time we recorded, you and I chatted about... Wuhan and and were sort of flummoxed by the idea that you know there seemed to be a lot of you know still a lot of solid evidence that the uh, the coronavirus epidemic that began in Wuhan had come out of the virological institute there but didn't seem to be getting all that much traction and bam it is the number one news story everywhere what what what's going on and what do you make about all this it's it's been an amazing turnaround and as you know Misha you and I have been somewhat skeptical of the stories coming out of the official Somewhat. Chinese government. <laughs> Somewhat. What are you, a diplomat all of a sudden? <laughs> oh, all that economist on the one hand, on the other hand, we just <laughs> had for the last uh, 45 minutes is uh, weakened my, uh, my, <laughs> Your killer my instinct. <laughs> well, yeah, it always seemed peculiar, right? That the outbreak would happen in the one city that has basically a, a bioweapons quality lab. Do you, know how many China. Wet, do you know how many wet yeah. markets there are in China? Yeah, in China thousands, was, thousands, yeah, thousands, but it happened in that one, right? Thousands, right. And it would happen that, and uh, far, far from where any bats naturally occur <laughs> that might carry the virus. Plus that the virus itself seemed almost perfect for spread. You know, it seemed to have changed faster than evolution would normally allow to. So now we're starting to see a, uh, different leaks now coming out a lot more media attention and investigatory journalism that you wish occurred a year ago. Why didn't it occur uh, a year ago, John? 
Yeah. I, I mean, you know, so some of our friends would say this was because the media itself was biased, that the scientific community was biased because basically because Trump believed that there was some kind of, or the Republican party believed that there was some kind of Wuhan release. I'm not so sure whether that's true or not. We'll find out, but uh, I do think that uh, it just seemed like common sense when you looked at the facts that there was this possibility that it had been uh, released from the lab, either, I don't think intentionally, but at least right. by mistake, by mistake. And that has a lot of, uh, it, I think that's a lot of um, impact on what we should do in response. Because the more and more it seems to me that it's not just a natural occurrence, but through some kind of negligence by the Chinese government, I think that strengthens the hands of the United States and other countries that want to take responses uh, to force China to pay for this. Now, you could be aggressive uh, and say, well, China should pay. You know, if this were uh, something happened in the United States, suppose um, and suppose uh, there was a lab that was working on dangerous materials in the United States and, and it got released and killed people around the lab or there was a nuclear accident and killed people around a power plant. That company would have to pay. It would have to compensate because you don't want people to act in the future in an unsafe way and get away with it. And one of the ways you get away with it is you're not fully conscious of the costs you're imposing, the risks you're imposing on everybody else around you. And so in what we call tort law, anyway, the, what we force polluters to do and people who cause accidents is to pay for all the costs. And so think about the costs that China has imposed on the world through what I think think is likely to be the negligent operation of this lab. Now, the other interesting thing, and so I would say, for example, like we should consider you know, confiscation of assets, canceling of their treasury holdings, you know, calling on them to pay back the pre-communist China bonds that they still owe the rest of the world. We, you know, we could go on. Um, but the other interesting thing is how much was the U.S. government involved, unfortunately? Um, was there any kind of effort not to fully release to the American people what our intelligence agencies knew, uh, the involvement of American government funding sources in the research that was being done? Um, you know, this is a research that wasn't being done in the United States. It's, a, it's almost, I, I hate, I, I would hate this to be the story that comes out, but what, were there nonprofits funding research in China because they have lax regulatory standards that, that would not permit such research to be done here? Uh, so there's all these stories swirling around and, you know, we're uh, learning more, but uh, it, I'll, I'll, you know, it, it it confirms the suspicions that you and I have long had on this show. So I'm glad we finally, finally write about something. Well, we, yeah, <laughs> finally write. I mean, obviously we weren't, you know, we weren't the only ones. Um, I do think it's yeah. interesting. I love when you get into your Kingsfield mode and I love the torts. All I can think about is the, the, the normal hand and a crippled hairy hand that Oh, yeah. That's another yeah. paper chase reference. Yes, the crippled um, hairy but, hand. But, <laughs> but, but there is an, I think there is a really interesting question. Of course, I'm 100% uh, you know, down with you on, on the idea of you know, thinking about what type of, of uh, costs you would impose. But it's obviously extremely complicated because at, at a certain point, it, it, you know, in some ways it becomes an act of God in the sense of yeah. it could have escaped. And, and I also don't believe that they would have released it um, consciously, but it could have escaped. But then in an integrated world of people hopping on airplanes back and forth, even if the government eventually said, well, we will not shut down travel when we should, it had already 
circulated before that. And then you get to the question of not culpability, but of the responsibility back here uh, of, of all levels of society to, to say, well, how could we have better protected ourselves? So there are, you know, yes, if, if it had not escaped, we wouldn't be facing this. That's why, you know, whenever you hear those stories about the, the two vials of smallpox that still exist in the world, right? One yeah. in Atlanta at the CDC and one in the middle of Siberia that the yeah. Russians have. And we're always thinking, when is it going to escape? Well, you know, this escaped. So, but but then it's, okay, so should we have shut down earlier? Should we never have shut down? We still don't know numbers. We still don't really know how it's transmitted. I, I think at the end of the day is China will never pay uh, a price for this, except in the dark recesses of the quiet nights when we're all in our rooms sleeping, thinking, yeah, I know that it's their fault. But beyond that, we we really we really can't do anything. I think the bigger question is, what happens for the next time? Meaning, all of this is water under the bridge in, in a way. Uh, and of course, you know, we, we after you know, being lambasted around the world and at home for our terrible response, we're leading the world in vaccinations. You've got 60% of the population, at least partly vaccinated. Europe is a disaster. Japan, unfortunately, is a disaster. India is a catastrophe. You know, we have emerged. The question is, what about next time? What lessons have we learned from this about the next time? Uh, it's actually the interesting way yeah. to think about. Um, so most people, when they think about torts, which is, you know, how the law of accidents, basically. Torts is just some fancy way to show you went to law school, but let's call accidents, you know, the law of accidents. So a lot of people think that when, say, you cause an accident and you're forced to pay for it, it's like a punishment. It's like a moral judgment, you know, what you did in the past. And that's like the 19th century view of accidents. So the 20th century view actually is much more forward looking. And it's, it goes exactly to your point. How do we deter people in the future from not undertaking risky conduct that they shouldn't, that society thinks the, right, the costs of that activity outweigh the benefits for next time, not for, you know, so when we force say, let's make China pay, it's not, I mean, there are going to be people who want, you know, revenge or want to impose some moral judgment on China. It's actually just the idea, this is how you prevent China from undertaking the risky activity next time, which is make them realize the costs of their activity. And so we would want to, uh, you know, force them to compensate the rest of the world because, right, and then they can decide next time, well, do we want to keep doing this research and have to pay the rest of the world again for our, you know, slipshod research labs and their conduct? They can still do it. We can't stop them from doing it within their own territory, but we can make them pay the price for it. And that will cause them to think maybe before they do it next, you know, whatever they're going to do research on uh, next time. Otherwise I agree with you. If we don't, then I worry, you know, that China pays no price. Maybe they suffer a diplomatic hit. You know, maybe they suffer uh, some, you know, more reluctance for people to cooperate with them, which I think they should anyway, because think about it, it's going along at the same time with what they've done in Hong Kong, what they're doing to Taiwan, what they've done to India. Oh, God, I would think if there were any more sign of why any country should not trust China to keep its word and, you know, be reluctant to engage in cooperation with China, it would be this. Well, I think that's a fantastic point about, you know, what a tort is for, I guess, the best way I can understand it, you know, being a knuckle dragging historian, it's a, it's a speeding ticket, right? Speeding ticket is so you don't want to do it again because you don't want to pay again, right? So it's a global yes. speeding ticket. The problem is, to your point exactly, is that China has never 
paid a price for action that we want to deter in the future. Meaning it has, we will never know the extent to which the Chinese economy is the result of the illicit gathering of intellectual property, the stealing Mm -hmm. of patents, the stealing of technology. Um, from research labs, from companies, from joint ventures, uh, and the like. Uh, the China paid no price for breaking into the government databases and stealing the confidential information of 25 million Americans, as well as breaking into insurance, uh, insurance um, companies for their private information. It's paid no price for the, the uh, cultural genocide, and in some cases, physical uh, certainly the physical oppression of the Uyghurs. It's paid no price for destroying Hong Kong democracy. Um, and tomorrow, by the way, we should note, I don't know if our show will be up by tomorrow. Tomorrow is the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre. Tiananmen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, there will probably be, for the first time in 30 years, no commemoration in Hong Kong because Hong Kong is no longer a free society. Um, so my point is, is that simply, you know, uh, as we thought that we needed to engage with China for business, that we thought that it was a good deal for China and a good deal for us, we became utterly unwilling to impose any costs on China, whether they were economic, moral, political, or otherwise. And so I don't see why we're going to change our tune, especially given how important China is today. I think the best we can hope for, and maybe this is a good place to end this, the best we can hope for is that the wall really seems to be crumbling around this. It was a it was it was a natural disease that escaped into a wet market. I mean, you've got everyone on board now basically saying what everyone knows and just not maybe having the smoking gun or not being willing to say it. And if you heard the former director of MI6, Sir Richard Dearlove, said uh, yesterday, the problem is, the bottom line is, you'll probably never know because they would have destroyed the evidence. But people will know, as you said, from common sense and, and from logic. It's a great place to end, and uh, hopefully we'll talk about this more as we learn more information. Uh, and uh, it's been a great, another great episode. And so on behalf of uh, Misha Oslin and I, I want to thank everybody from for joining us on our episode today of the Pacific Century, and we look forward to welcoming you next time. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.